I don't know how many of you know what this is. This is called an hourglass cipher. You may see similar kinds of ciphers when you're watching a movie or reading a book and it talks about someone taking a overlay and putting it on top of a book or a page or a letter. And then certain words, when you look at those cutouts, will give you what the message really is. You can actually find this cipher. It's a historical cipher. It took place during the Revolutionary War as there was an attempt by the British to basically cut off Massachusetts colony from the rest of the rebellion. And in that, there was some communication that was going on between General Clinton and General Burgoyne about their superior, General Howe. And in this particular message, what Clinton was trying to say was, you think this is going on, but in reality, something very different is happening. And in that whited out part, that would be the overlay. It was a cutout of that hourglass. And if you laid it over top of the letter that Clinton wrote, General Clinton wrote, you get the message. You get the full message. You get the focus of what that letter is really all about. As we are dealing with this whole topic of renewal, I know some of you are trying to make out the, the, the message in there. Uh, as you're, as we're, whole to- we're talking about this whole topic of renewal, and we come to Second Chronicles chapter 30, in a sense, there is an overlay. In order to understand what's going on in this 30th chapter of Second Chronicles, we need to have the overlay that took place earlier and take that and lay it over Second Chronicles 30 and you begin to understand more fully what the writer of Chronicles is trying to say. Let me show you the overlay. The overlay is this. This was the theme that we have been dealing with over and over again as we've gone through Second Chronicles and how the writer of Second Chronicles is dealing with renewal. Dealing with the fact that God wants to work among his people. God wants his people to fully enjoy the covenant relationship that they share together. One of my favorite passages in Luke is where Jesus says to the disciples, my father willingly gives you the kingdom. He longs to give you blessing. He longs for you to enjoy the fullness of this relationship and not in the promise of land and things like that that existed in the Old Testament, but in the promise of the richness of the relationship that we share and the fullness of his blessing that he longs to pour out on his people. 
But in order to enjoy that, enjoy that, there needs to be that prayerful response as we long for more of God. The prayerful response is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. And I want you to notice the words that are underlined because they become the cipher. God speaks to Solomon in response to his prayer with the dedication of the temple some 14 years later and says this, if my people who are called by my name, and then here comes the four things, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. God says, I will respond. I will hear them. I will forgive them. And I will heal them. I will restore the enjoyment of my covenantal blessing. That's how we define the healing of their land. Now, watch those words. Listen for the words humble. The word prayer. The word seek. And the word turn. Because in the passage here in Second Chronicles... It has been 120 years since God brought revival. 120 years since they experienced that unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There had been good kings and there had been wicked kings. There had been righteous times and there had been difficult times. But it had been 120 years since they experienced that unique outpouring by God's sovereignty. And now all of a sudden in 2 Chronicles, something is happening. And you begin to hear these words. And the passage that Dave read as he was dealing with this event. He talks about the coming back of the people to worship God again in Jerusalem that the northern tribe would come south and there was a gathering unlike anything that had happened from the days of David. And it says in that time that as the couriers went out from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh and Zebulun, but the people scorned the rulers, nevertheless, some men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves. Does that word sound from But we keep reading. It goes on to say, particularly in in verses 18 through 20, although most of the many people who came from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. Now, none of you want, ooh, when I read that. But that would have been an appropriate response. Do you know what happened if you ate of the Passover and you were unclean? Normally, you would bring judgment on yourself. But Hezekiah understood that there was such darkness that these people were coming out of that he comes and he asks God to forgive and to work. Now, listen to the verses that follow. Hezekiah prayed. Does that word sound familiar? Look up there. For them, 
saying, may the Lord who is good pardon them, forgive them. He who sets his heart on seeking God. Does that word show up up there? The Lord, the God of his father, even if he is not clean, according to the rules of the sanctuary, and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed them. Something's going on. The writer of Second Chronicles wants us to know he's going back to chapter 7, verse 14. This is part of what God said he would do if God's people would humble themselves, if they would pray, if they would seek his face. But you're saying, wait a minute, Keith, where's the turn? Turn is the focus. The word turn, when it talks about turning to God or God turning to us, is used 118 times in all of the Old Testament. It's used 13 times by the writer of 2 Chronicles. But here's the emphasis. It's used five of those 13 times in three verses. What the writer of Second Chronicles wants us to understand is that God is responding, not in that sense of because he owes us, but in the sense of as we're involved in the walk and in the spiritual activities of our lives, God at times chooses to respond in a unique and special way. And so when you read Second Chronicles, and you read in verse 30, and you begin in the middle of verse 6, it says, people of Israel... Turn or return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their father, so that he made them an object of horror as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary, which has been consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you turn or return to the Lord, then your brothers and sisters, children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to the land of the Lord, your God. Your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from those who turn to him. Do you get a pattern? The pattern is this idea that God says, I want to respond to my people. I want to renew them. I want them to enjoy the blessings that I long to pour out in their lives. I long for them to enjoy this covenant relationship, this this promised relationship that is theirs through what God has provided in the New Testament in the blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that more fully. What we need to do is that prayerful response that we've talked about just over and over again (coughs) to respond in our normal spiritual patterns of humbling ourselves, admitting that God is God and I'm not. And my ultimate and full and complete and thorough and absolute dependence upon him. I need to seek his face. To ask the question, 
What does the presence, the character, the word, and the will of God have to do with every aspect of my life? I need to pray. As Jean spoke last week, that sense of committed prayer that says, God, I long to know you more fully. The uniqueness of that prayer and how prayer dominates all of this section is in response to the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. This morning we talk about what does it mean to turn from our wicked ways? How do we turn from ungodliness towards godliness? What does that look like? When you overlay that pattern over this passage, God says, my people need to turn. They need to move in some new directions. And beloved, it means every single one of us including the guy up here. There are things we need to turn from. There are things we need to turn away from. As we look at this passage and we overlay that cipher, we come to understand this renewal involves turning towards God, away from ungodliness. I am hoping that as we are beginning this message, in fact, I hope you do this in every message, that the question is, God, what do you have to say to me? God, what ungodliness dwells in my life that you are asking me to turn away from? The process begins first by acknowledging the ungodliness from which to turn. To be willing to take a look at our lives and say, God, what are the things that just shouldn't be there? What are the things that do not reflect? Remember the four? They don't reflect your presence, your character, your word, and your will. God, as I seek you, and I see your presence, your character, your word, and your will, what in my life doesn't line up? And as Chris said so well, this isn't about getting God to love me or getting God to to want to accept me. Beloved, this message is preached to those who already know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Who already have that covenant relationship and long for more. And it begins by putting faith and trust in what Jesus already accomplished. And then in that relationship, because of that relationship, because I'm the child of the king. Did you know I'm Prince Keith? Cindy is Princess Cindy. Did you know that? So 
So the question becomes, how do I live like that prince? How do you live like that princess? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to recognize the ungodly influencing culture in which we abide. What does the world tell us that just is not so? That we hear continually in the books that are published, in the TV and the movies that are produced, in the radio shows that we listen to, and the conversations we are in that are contrary to the word of God. And not so we can judge other people. That's not the purpose. But that we can look inside our lives and say, God, does that conform to your presence, your character, your word, and your will? For Hezekiah, it was the worst of times. Because even though there had been righteous kings, the worst of all of the unrighteous kings was Hezekiah's father, a man by the name of Ahaz. And in the chapter before the story dealing with Hezekiah, the life of Ahaz is enveloped. It's that word that you'll hear me use sometimes, an inclusio. It's because it's so common in the in the scriptures. It's where the writer will begin with a statement and end with a statement. And what he's trying to say to you is, that's the focus of this narrative, of this story. And when you're dealing with Ahaz, there is an enveloping, there is an inclusio. He is so bad that the writer of Second Chronicles says, I begin telling you about his life and I end telling you about his life by just mentioning how corrupt and how corrupting this king was to his people. It's found in Second Chronicles 28. And as the writer of Chronicles introduces Ahaz, he says Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the description. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, that is the northern kingdom, the corrupt kingdom, and also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifice in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and sacrificed his sons in the fire. That's child sacrifice. Laying your child in the arms of this huge statue as the child rolled down those arms and into the fire. He brought that into Israel. He offered sacrifice and burn incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. And what's so interesting is the writer of Chronicles at the very end in verses 22 through 25, basically repeats the same thing. That when Ahaz was defeated by the nations around him because of his disobedience to God, rather than turning to God, he would turn to the idols of those countries. And it says, and you can read it, the corruption of this man. 
As I read through that, I thought, you know, the corruption that surrounds us is not that much different. What we hear from our culture is a rejection of God. We hear a dismissing of his righteousness. We hear that I am to be the center of the universe. And my life is what is most important and most central. What I want, when I want it. And the sense of entitlement and the demand for privilege and entertainment and consumption is overwhelming. And though we don't have a God, Moloch, or Baal, to which we sacrifice children. Children are sacrificed to comfort, to lifestyle, to advancement, to careers. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this in a message. This week, I choose to show it. This was Michelle Williams' acceptance of her Golden Globe Award. I don't show it to revile her or to condemn her, though I reject what she says. But I show what she says in order to say, this is the culture that has the greatest influence and surrounds us. When you put this in someone's hands, you're acknowledging the choices that they make as an actor, moment by moment, scene by scene, day by day, but you're also <coughs> acknowledging the choices they make as a person, the education they pursued, the training they sought, the hours they put in. I'm grateful for the acknowledgement of the choices I've made, and I'm also grateful to have lived at a moment in our society where choice exists, because as women and as girls, things can happen to our bodies that are not our choice. I've tried my very best to live a life of my own making, not just a series of events that happened to me, but one that I could stand back and look at and recognize my handwriting all over, sometimes messy and scrawling, sometimes careful and precise, but one that I had carved with my own hand. And I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. To choose when to have my children and with whom, when I felt supported and able to balance our lives, knowing as all mothers know that the scales must and will tip towards our children. Now, I know my choices might look different than yours, but thank God or whomever you pray to that we live in a country founded on the principle that I am free to live by my faith and you are free to live by yours. So. Women, 18 to 118, when it is time to vote, please do so in your own self-interest. It's what men have been doing for years. It's what men have been doing for years, which is why the world looks so much like them. Now, I want to be careful. I think we need to start voting in ways that reflect 
not just the aggressiveness that can often be the reality of men, but also the compassion and the care that often is the characteristics of women. I'm not condemning that. But I'll tell you what troubled me as I listened to that, and I grieve for our culture when I heard that. It is the idea, and do you know she was pregnant when she was saying that? And she said, what's important most of all in my life is my children. When does the life of a child begin? When it comes out of the womb and when it's placed in. What does God's word say? What's his will? When I heard her say, Ladies, men have been voting for their own self-interest. Now we need to vote for our own self-interest. I thought, so what you're saying is we counter a wrong with exactly the same wrong. Do you know what is to govern our politics? Not my self-interest. God's word is clear which should govern our political choices, all of our choices, is the kingdom of God. Is God's purpose, God's will. As I heard that, I thought, this woman is standing before the most privileged, entitled people in our country. who show a self-centeredness beyond most of our comprehensions. And the attitude was one of moralizing how bad we are and how right that is. And beloved, every one of us is influenced and drawn by that culture that surrounds us. But not only is it a problem that exists within us, I mean, outside of us. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He says, They are darkened in their own understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. If it feels good, do it. That was the models of my generation. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. As Paul wrote that, he spoke not only of what was out there, but in there is also what's in here. You see, the struggle that existed in the time of Hezekiah was not just the influence of Ahaz. That was serious. But it was also the pride that existed among the people. Their selfishness and self-centeredness so that when the proclamation went out, to all of the kingdom, to return to the Lord, to turn to him. 
It said many rejected, but only a few humbled themselves. The opposite of humility is pride, is arrogance. And as we seek to turn from the Lord, we must recognize the ungodliness that lives right here. My selfishness. My self-centeredness. My self-aggrandizing. The belief that the world centers around me. There is an ungodliness that lives around us and in us. We need to begin to recognize. I was thinking, how do you recognize this? There are a couple ways. I was thinking about, there's a particular TV show that I really like to watch. And this particular TV show was on one network, which is a more family-oriented network. And so they kept the language and they kept the, you know, sensual scenes to a minimum. And all of a sudden, another network picked up this show. And the language has become exponentially worse. The sensual scenes have become much worse. And I thought to myself, what's more important? To see how the series ends or to reflect the presence, the character, the word, and the will of God. I thought about the fact that if I'm not careful, the language and the attitude that comes out of my mouth I look at it and think to myself, 10 years ago, I would not have spoken that way. I would not have watched that. I would not have reacted that way. I look at the ways that I respond when people disagree with me or people don't acknowledge my work or whatever, and I ask, is that how the Lord would do it? And when I fall short, it's not that I'm afraid God's going to come and go, that's it. But I realize, God, I'm so far away from enjoying the blessings, the presence, the fellowship. I think of my value on spiritual things of reading God's word and spending time in prayer and and, and being a part of God's people. And I say, have I so diminished them in my life that they're not important anymore? God, maybe there's some turning that I need to do. And that's what happens in this passage. The people accede to following the very ways of God. Remember what God said at the very end there is, if they will seek me 
If they will turn to me, I will not turn away from them. In the midst of failing in the Passover and eating in an unclean way, Hezekiah comes and says, God, show us your grace because we're seeking you. We are seeking to do it according to your word. We're seeking to do it according to your will. We're seeking to do it in a way that represents your character and your presence. And that's Hezekiah's prayer. God, we are seeking you. So the first thing they begin to do is they're willing to begin to submit to the presence, character, word, and will of God. We don't have time to read through all the passages, but the first thing that becomes is that they begin to do is they, there's repentance from revealed unfaithfulness. You can read in there how they destroyed their idols. They, they destroyed the, 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 the sacred groves. They began to, to respond to God and gather in Jerusalem and gather for the feast. And they began to repent of their unfaithfulness. They turned away from the things that were corrupting them. And beloved, you know these things. Some of you are sitting right here this morning and there is something in your brain and it's right here. And God is saying, child, that's keeping you from enjoying the fullness of our relationship together. Maybe it's an addictive behavior. Maybe it's a, uh, a, an immorality Maybe it's a rage and anger. Maybe it's a bitterness and unforgiveness. And God has been saying, child, please deal with it. I want to pour out on you. God says, turn away. Do what is necessary to deal with that thing in your life. Maybe it's the more subtle things. You find yourself more angry. You find yourself more irritated. You find yourself, you know, again, watching things you wouldn't have watched before or or responding to people in ways that you say, where'd that come from? God says, child, there's some things we need to deal with. And by the way, one of the best places to do it is right here in community, in the small groups and in the one-on-one relationships that we share. But also it involves the willingness to be continually submissive. I was listening to Tony Evans this morning, as I do every Sunday morning when I'm getting ready. And he talked about waking up in the morning and simply repeating the words, Lord, this is the day that you have made. Help me this day in everything I do to do it in a way that reflects you. Remember, we said, use your cell phones, set them for every four hours. And every four hours, just take 30 seconds to say, Lord, what does it mean right now to show your presence, your character, your word, and your will? Maybe it it means putting a, a three by five card on your dashboard. That's probably one of the worst places. That says, as this person cut me off, how do I show the presence, the character, the word, and the will of God? It's exactly what Paul spoke about when he said this. The first part we already read, they are darkened in their understanding. But then right in the middle, you'll see the word you. You, however, do not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance to the truth that is in Jesus. 
his presence, his character, his word, his will. You were taught with regard to your former ways of life to take it off. Make the choices, do the things that are necessary to help remove those things from your life. Your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in your attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Created to look like God. Read Zechariah 3 this afternoon. It's the passage this image is based on. It's what that book and others that Eric's going to be speaking on next week when he talks about turning to God as getting involved in his work. And there you see the high priest standing before God. And the NIV is euphemistic. It uses the word soiled robes. Now, this is Joshua, not the one that fit the battle of Jericho, but Joshua, the high priest, a thousand years later, who is standing before God in fecally stained robes. We find that offensive, but to think that he's in the presence of God with that is even more so. And the image is, God says to him, take off that old robe and put on the new. That's what it means to turn to the Lord, to look at those areas in our life where we're being influenced and to say, God, I will do what is necessary to deal with these areas in my life, not so you'll love me more or like me more or to get it, but simply to enjoy you more. And then God responds. He actuates his promise. Again, read the rest of Hezekiah's story in Second Chronicles chapter 30. And you find that God pours out his presence on his people. He motivates their obedience. He grounds them in his word. He focuses them on celebration. And it says that they celebrated in ways that hadn't been done in the time of David. And then all of a sudden, there is a bam! And revival breaks out. And God suddenly pours his presence out in a way that had not existed for 120 years. I don't know if God will choose to bring that kind of revival. But here's what I do know. If we humble ourselves, if we seek his face, if we pray, if we turn, we will know the relationship and the intimacy with God like we never have before. And he will forgive sin. He will hear and he will heal those who are willing to turn towards him. Father, thank you for the message we find here, and we pray that we would be those who choose to live it out, not for us, but for your glory and for your honor, for your kingdom. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, 
who makes it all possible.